Hello and welcome to the post-ESMO edition of Sightlines podcast. In this month's podcast, we'll be highlighting and discussing some key results presented at ESMO 2022. First off, I'd like to introduce myself, Ellie, and the rest of Data Monitor's oncology team, Dana. Hello. Millie. Hi. And Flora. Hi. So I'm going to kick off the podcast by discussing the first phase three data for KRAS G12C inhibitor Lumacras, which was the last minute abstract entry to ESMO, and it was presented in the presidential symposium. The data is from the phase three CODEBREAK 200 study, which is investigating Lumacras in patients with KRAS G12C mutant non-small cell lung cancer. The Kirsten rat sarcoma or KRAS oncogene most common oncogenic driver in non-small cell lung cancer and it's found in around 20 to 25 percent of non-small cell lung cancer cases and the most common KRAS mutation is the KRAS G12C subtype. This subtype accounts for around 40 percent of KRAS mutations in non-small cell lung cancer and this study is important as KRAS mutations are often associated with poor prognosis due to poor responses to most systemic therapies available And until the accelerated approval of Lumacris last year, there were no targeted therapies approved for the treatment of KRAS-mutated non-small cell lung cancer. Lumacris was approved based on the data from the registrational phase 2 portion of the phase 1 and 2 CODEBRIC 100 study in May 2021, and European and Japanese approvals followed in January 2022. CODEBREAK 200 is a randomised, open-label study comparing Lumacrest to standard-of-care chemotherapy, docetaxel, for the second-line or beyond treatment of KRAS G12C-mutated non-small cell lung cancer patients with locally advanced or metastatic disease. The study initially planned to enrol 650 patients, but based on the results of CODEBREAK 100 and guidance from the FDA, Amgen reduced the sample size to reflect the statistical power necessary for the progression-free survival primary endpoint. The primary endpoint was statistical improvement in progression-free survival over docetaxel and disease control rate, objective response rate and overall survival were all secondary endpoints. In August, Amgen announced the trial had met its primary endpoint, so these numerical data um, released to ESMO were highly anticipated. But although the data reported at ESMO may be enough to convert Lumacrus's accelerated approval into a full one, I think everyone is in agreement that the data was underwhelming and showed patients were not perhaps benefiting from Lumacrus as much as originally hoped. In CODEBREAK 200, Lumacrus showed statistical benefit in medium PFS over chemotherapy. However, it failed to show statistical and numerical benefit in overall survival. Lumacrus delayed tumour growth by a little over a month compared to treatment with chemotherapy. And although the 5.6 month PFS seen in the Lumacris arm is numerically and statistically superior to the 4.5 month PFS seen in the chemotherapy arm, the benefit is below expectations. And an around um, a two month PFS benefit over chemotherapy, I think, was hoped for. The data is below the data reported from the CODEBREAK 100 trial, which saw a PFS of 6.3 months, but it must be noted that this was for a single arm trial, so there was no control arm for comparison. Also, although the OS was secondary endpoint, it was disappointing that Lumacris failed to show an OS benefit at all over docetaxel, actually reported a numerically lower OS of 10.6 months versus 11.3 months with docetaxel. Although Amgen did state that CODEBREAK 200 was not powered to detect a statistical difference in OS due to a reduction in trial size, but nonetheless, this is still disappointing. The one-year PFS data do look better, with a 24% 
one year PFS rate for Lumacross coming in over double the 10% one year PFS rate for chemotherapy. Also, the 28% objective response rate for Lumacross is superior to the 13% objective response rate for the chemotherapy arm. There were also fewer serious adverse events in the Lumacross arm, and it demonstrated an overall more favourable safety profile than seen with chemotherapy treatment. 11% of patients treated with Lumacross experienced a serious treatment-related adverse event compared to 23% of patients treated with docetaxel. However, liver enzyme elevations remain a concern and were seen in around 10% of patients, although that also seems to be an issue with adagrasib based on its phase two data. Lumacris benefits from a significant first market advantage with Marotti Therapeutics having only filed for approval for adagrasib, a pipeline competitor of Lumacris in Q4 2021. So if the FDA deems these results um, from Codebreak 200 are sufficient to award Lumacris with a full approval, this may undermine Marotti Therapeutics' route to an accelerated approval, despite a Dagrasib demonstrating superior phase 1b and 2 data. An approval for a Dagrasib is expected in mid-December this year, but there is now a race to secure its accelerated approval before the FDA potentially converts Lumacress's accelerated approval to a full approval based on the results from this confirmatory trial. If they do, Marotti may have to complete its confirmatory phase three crystal 12 trial before approval can be granted, as there may long, no longer be an unmet need in this patient population. Although these results are a little disappointing, um, the results for Codebreak 200 are still positive and should still support the uptake of Lumacross as the new standard of care over chemotherapy in these patients, who were previously classed as undruggable due to their lack of response to targeted therapies. Also, Lumacross is a once daily oral pill, which is far more convenient than receiving intravenous chemotherapy, which would require frequent hospital admission. What we may see, though, is there may be issues surrounding the lack of survival benefit, especially in cost conservative settings, where Lumacross is a much more expensive option than chemotherapy. Lumacross data from colorectal cancer was also presented at ESMO. Dana, what did this data show? So in colorectal cancer, the data are not as uh, as advanced as in non-small cell, uh, but we've seen updated results from the the phase one code break 101 trial. Um, so this trial was assessing Lumacris in combination with Vectibix, and the data show an uh, overall response rate of 30% um, in patients with metastatic colorectal cancer uh, that had been previously treated at least once. Uh, and the disease control rate of 93%, with a median duration of response of 4.4 months. Um, the data did come from a small number of patients. Uh, there were 40, but they, they do look promising. And Ellie, you mentioned the phase two code break one, 100 trial. So that trial also recruited colorectal cancer patients, and it showed modest clinical activity for single-agent Lumacris. In, in the heavily pretreated CRC patients. Um, so as uh, mentioned before, uh, Lumacris is targeting the KRAS uh, G12C mutation. Um, it has This mutation has a low incidence uh, between three and 5% of CRC cases. Um, but going back to the to the code break 100, in that trial, we saw an overall response rate of 12 percent 
for the single agent with a median PFS of 4.2 months and a median OS of 13.4 months. So it looks like the addition of Vectibix to Lumacris uh, does give it a much needed efficacy boost. So uh, from the code break 101, we saw a median PFS of 5.7 months uh, and a median OS that hadn't been reached at the, the median follow-up of 8.8 months. The data presented at ESMO uh, show a tolerable safety profile for the for the combination of Lumacris and Vectibix, and there were no treatment-related adverse events that led to discontinuation of, of either drug. So going back to the to the target population, the KRAS G12C mutated population, um, this this is a population with a with a very high unmet need. The currently available therapies available for this um, for this population offer quite low response rates um, and they have short survival benefits. So if we see um, the same encouraging efficacy demonstrated by Lumacrest in combination with Vectibix in a phase three trial, and we have code break 300 for that, I think Lumacrest stands a very good chance of carving itself a small niche, um, but um, you know, uh, one that, that's really important for metastatic CRC treatment. Um, you mentioned adagrasib, so uh, Mirati's adagrasib also competes with Lumacrest in the CRC um, market. Uh, it's also in development for the same patient population. And indeed, presented at ESMO, uh, there were also data from, from adagrasib. There were updated results from a phase one to crystal one trial. So these results uh, spelled quite good news for adagrasib. The monotherapy showed an L uh, ORR of 19% and a median PFS of 5.6 months. And again, similar to uh, to Lumacris, the double blockade of KRAS and EGFR. So in this case, adagrasib with EGFR inhibitor Erbitux boosted the efficacy. So uh, they showed an ORR of 46%, a median PFS of 6.9 months, and a median OS of 13.4. Um, the median follow-up for this trial was slightly longer. It was 17.5 months. Um, again, both Lumacris and Adagrasib are limited by the incidence of, uh, of the G12C KRAS mutation um, to approximately 5% of the CRC population. So it's not a huge population, but as I said before, it's um, there is a very high unmet need. And it is a combination um, that is chemo-free, which is uh, very rare and um, much needed. Um, previously mentioned, PR CRC uh, patients uh, treated in these later lines have a very poor prognosis. Usually currently available therapies give about two, just over two months of PFS. So boosting this would be would be welcomed by patients and physicians alike um, the safety and tolerability data an important consideration in the treatment decision for um, for this poor prognosis patients um, indicate quite a well tolerated profile for for adagrasib uh, be it monotherapy or in combination with with herbitux the data presented at esmo showed most 
uh, treatment-related adverse events uh, being diarrhea, nausea, fatigue, and vomiting. And importantly, there were no aggressive-related adverse events that led to discontinuation. So based on these results, Mirati have indicated uh, their hopes for a registration-enabling phase two cohort of CRYSTAL-1. So this would compound efforts to develop adagrasid for, for advanced CRC. Um, the drug is already in a pivotal phase three trial, that's CRYSTAL-10, um, and it recruits second-line CRC patients harboring the, the KRAS G12C mutation. Um, the primary completion estimated for CRYSTAL-10 is September 2023, and uh, CRYSTAL-1 is estimated to complete roughly at the same time. So data from both trials may be used to support the, the NDA for adagrasib. And, you know, being that Lumacrest is targeting the same population, um, adagrasib will face competition from, from Lumacrest. So it, it remains to be seen which one of them will come on top, if any. Um, but if, if they do have similar profiles, there will definitely be space for, for two agents in uh, in this uh, population with admin need. And were there any other interesting talks that caught your attention in the colorectal cancer space? There was. Um, so Frequintinib, this is a uh, VEGFR inhibitor uh, developed by Hutchmed, already marketed in China uh, under the brand name Elinate. And it showed strong PFS and OS improvements in um, in the heavily pretreated metastatic colorectal cancer population um, in the phase three Fresco trial. The Fresco trial recruited uh, only in China. So in order to expand the development to the US uh, and beyond, the Fresco 2 trial was set up. Data from the from the uh, Fresco 2 trial was presented at at ESMO. So we knew from uh, from back in August that the trial had met its primary endpoint OS uh, and its secondary endpoints, which included PFS. But we had no numerical data uh, until ESMO. So at a median follow up of 11.3 months, uh, we were shown that uh, frequentinib added to best supportive care led to a median OS of 7.4 months. And this was a significant improvement over the comparator of best supportive care alone, uh, which only reached 4.8 months. The median PFS was uh, 3.7 uh, versus the 1.8 months for best supportive care. So these are really encouraging results. Uh, third and later line metastatic CRC is um, an area of very high unmet need um, as previously mentioned uh, when talking about adagrasib and lumacris. The Fresco trial, so this is the original trial that got the drug uh, approved in China, reported high rates of adverse events and an increased rate of hospitalization uh, due to uh, frequentinib-related serious adverse events. Fresco 2 data uh, also show an increase in treatment-related adverse events uh, that were associated with frequentinib. Uh, we saw 68.4% of patients requiring treatment interruption compared to 478 in the comparator arm and over a quarter required dose reductions. 
most patients treated with either frequentinib or best supportive care alone experienced treatment-related adverse events. So these were high percentages, 98.9% uh, .9 versus 92.6%. And adverse events led to death in a similar number of patients in either arm. So these high percentages seen in both arms may indicate that the toxicity uh, could be related to the patient population, which is a multi-refractory one, rather than uh, treatment with frequentinib. Um, so to conclude, a novel therapy that offers both a PFS and an OS benefit, such as frequentinib, would definitely be a welcome addition to um, to the treatment algorithm of, of CRC. So now that we have data from the Western population, uh, frequentinib looks like it has a good chance of, of succeeding past regulatory uh, approval hurdles. Millie, what were some interesting trial data presented at ESMO for breast cancer? Firstly, something quite significant was the presentation of OS data um, in the Phase 3 Tropics O2 trial of Tridelvi in HR-positive HER2-negative breast cancer patients. Um, and this trial investigated Tridelvi in patients who have failed at least two prior chemotherapy regimens. In the trial, patients treated with Tridelvi had a 3.2-month OS increase compared to those treated with chemotherapy. So um, this data was really significant as um, Gilead presented slightly underwhelming PFS data from his trial at ASCO 2022. So um, Tridelvi treated patients had a PFS increase of only 1.5 months compared to physicians' choice of chemotherapy. Many um, questioned if this data was clinically significant, particularly as a much more positive data on inher 2 um, in a similar setting was presented at ASCO as well. Um, patients treated with Tridelvi also had increased incidences of grade three or above adverse events compared to the chemotherapy arm. So it was kind of thought that physicians may find it difficult to justify Tridelvi's risk to benefit profile based on the data from ASCO alone. However, this OS data for Tridelvi is more clinically significant and physicians may be able to better justify the use of this ADC in this setting. And Gilead needs as much positive data as it can get on Tridelvi after Daiichi Sankyo presented groundbreaking data on Anher2 at ASCO 2022. And Anher2 will likely be favoured over Tridelvi in this setting, just due to the sheer efficacy it demonstrated in the Phase 3 Destiny Breast O2 trial. However, Tridelvi has demonstrated a slightly more favourable safety profile in Tropics O2, which may help boost its sales. And then another set of interesting data in breast cancer was the release of OS data from the Phase 3 Monarch 3 trial, looking at the CDK46 inhibitor of Xenio plus an aromatase inhibitor for first-line metastatic HR-positive HER2-negative breast cancer patients. For Xenio, showed a numerical but not statistically significant increase in OS compared to the placebo arm. And the reason that this was particularly interesting is because the gold standard CDK46 inhibitor in the setting, Ibrant, also demonstrated a non-significant OS increase in data presented at ASCO 2022. So this leaves the third CDK46 inhibitor approved in the setting, Kiskali, as the only one with a significant OS benefit. Um, and previously, the CDK46 inhibitors were regarded by physicians as essentially interchangeable, and there was little to differentiate them. Ibrance was the gold standard therapy in first-line metastatic setting um, due to it being the first approved, and Kiskali and Vizenio lagged behind. 
However, now all three have released OS data, it's thought that Cascali cells may be boosted as it is now the only one which has demonstrated a significant increase. Airbrats will probably maintain high sales though, um, just due to physician familiarity. And um, Visenya, unfortunately, will still lag behind in the metastatic setting, although um, it is the only CDK46 inhibitor approved in the adjuvant setting. And that adjuvant approval was granted in October 2021, and it's given Visenya access to a really large portion of the HR positive, HER2 negative um, breast cancer market. So that's really helped to boost Eli Lilly's revenues from that drug. And what about in prostate cancer? So for me, the most interesting data presented in prostate cancer at ESMO was the release of data from the phase three splash trial of PNT 2002. So PNT 2002 is a PSMA targeted radiotherapy, which is similar to the recently approved Pluvicto. Um, and some data was released from the part one cohort of the trial which was a very small, small cohort of 27 patients. Um, and I was particularly interested in this data as um, I thought it'd be interesting to see the overall efficacy and safety of the entire drug class as the only late phase data we have in this drug class as of yet is from Previcto. And so um, just to re-emphasize, this data was in a very small cohort, but patients treated with PNT2002 did have a significantly improved PFS. Um, the patients in the treatment arm had a PFS of 11.5 months compared to 3.5 to 4.2 months in the comparator arm. So this is actually an increase um, when compared to Pluvicto's results in the vision trial, where the treated patients reached a PFS of 8.7 months. So this data is very encouraging and it suggests the entire drug class may be extremely effective in MCRPC patients. However, again, the data is in a really small cohort um, but part two of the study is going to be much larger than part one. There's going to be 390 patients um, that are expected to be enrolled. And so data will be very interesting from this part of the study, because if they can replicate the findings from part one, it could overtake Pluvicto as the favoured PSMA targeted therapy pre-treated MCRPC patients. And were there any significant developments presented at ESMO for renal cell carcinoma? So... There were some top line results presented from the phase three COSMIC 313 trial, which was investigating a triplet combination of cabometics, um, Opdivo and Yervoy and first line metastatic poor or intermediate risk RCC. So the data was positive, but it was pretty top line. Um, the triple combination's median PFS has not yet been reached, but the comparator arm's median PFS was 11.3 months. Um, so the efficacy is going to have to be really robust as the current standards of care in first line RCC are TKI and ICI combinations, which are really well established, um, Keytruda and Lymphema and Opdiva and Cabometics. So the Keytruda and Lymphema combo has demonstrated a PFS of 23.9 months and the Opdiva and Cabometics combo has demonstrated a PFS of 16.6 months. And the data from COSMIC 313 is definitely positive as the median PFS is not reached for cabometics of Devo and Yervoy, meaning it is well on its way to getting comparable efficacy uh, to these frontline standards of care. However, the safety profile for the triplet combination was less than favourable. 73% of patients in the treatment arm experienced a grade three or above adverse event compared to 41% in the comparator arm. So unless the efficacy is extremely positive and could justify the safety profile, it's unlikely many physicians will prescribe this in the first line if it ever receives approval, just seeing as there are other more tolerable options for them to choose from. 
And just as a final point, um, the cost of this triplet regimen will be higher than the doublet standards of care. So this may, may make it even harder to justify um, the use of the triplet combination unless the efficacy is truly significant. So, yeah, I think the data will probably warrant an approval if the efficacy is comparable to the other frontline standards of care. It's uh, more once it is approved, the uptake will probably be quite low and sales for the three drugs are unlikely to be increased substantially. Also, the cervical cancer space saw various positive developments at ESMO 2022, one of which was the anticipated final survival analysis from the Phase 3 Empower Cervical 1 study, which investigates Libteo in second-line recurrent or metastatic cervical cancer patients. Flora, what do these data mean for Regeneron's PD-1 inhibitor, Libteo? Uh, this final analysis demonstrated uh, Libteo to significantly improve overall survival compared to chemotherapy. Uh, reporting a 34% lower risk of death observed in the treatment arm overall population. So the OS improvement of 3.2 months shows this immunomonotherapy can produce a significant and clinically meaningful survival benefit. And this, of course, favours Libteo as a therapeutic option, which would advantage physicians' arsenal. So whilst this is an excitement advancement for the drug, it is slightly tinged by the company's decision to stop pursuing Libteo in the US cervical cancer market, which came earlier this year. So in January, Regeneron and Sanofi voluntarily withdrew a supplemental biologics license application to the FDA for Libteo use in cervical cancer patients, which the companies announced was due to an inability to align with the FDA on certain post-marketing studies. But this withdrawal came unexpectedly, considering the promising efficacy data available for Libteo at the time, and is perhaps even more disappointing now, considering these impressive data from ESMO. It seems undeniable that Libteo looks set to be successful in this setting. So I think this withdrawal represented a potentially large lucrative loss for Sanofi and Regeneron. Libteo sales thus far have been underwhelming. Um, this can predominantly be attributed to its late entry into the saturated immune checkpoint inhibitor market. So, for example, in 2021, uh, K-Tuda held 54% of market share for the PD-1 inhibitor market in oncology and continues holding this dominating position with approval across 13 indications, including cervical cancer, whereas Libteo held approximately 0.081% share of this overall PD-1 market. Importantly, except the approval of Keytruda, cervical cancer as an indication remains a relatively uncontested market for immune checkpoint inhibitors and is also an indication of high unmet need. So a label expansion for Libteo into this less saturated indication within the US would have likely secured the drug considerable revenue growth um, and so is perhaps a missed opportunity for the companies. However, with that being said, Hope's not quite lost for Libteo, uh, as the company is continued to pursue label expansion within Europe and a supplemental European decision, approval decision uh, is expected before the end of this year. So these data from ESNO will undoubtedly help Libteo's case for European approval and will hopefully revivify the drugs uh, thus far underwhelming sales. You mentioned Keytruda to be the first PD-1 inhibitor to reach the cervical cancer market. How do you think these data from ESMO will play into the competition between Libteo and Keytruda if Libteo is to receive European approval? Well, K 
Kdruda initially received accelerated approval uh, from the FDA based on response data from the phase two Keynote 158 trial uh, in 2018. And so then in 2021, the FDA converted this conditional approval to a full approval following positive survival data from the pivotal phase three Keynote 158 trial. And um, Keytruda also received a label extension from the EMA based on this data uh, in April this year. So the Keynote 158 trial investigates Keytruda in combination with chemotherapy as a frontline regimen for metastatic or recurrent cervical cancer. So whilst these results convince Keytruda to be an efficacious therapy for cervical cancer patients, we still lack survival data for Keytruda in the pre-treated setting. And now, on the other hand, following these results from Empower uh, reported at ESMO, we now have a clear significant survival benefit observed with the use of Libteo in second line disease. And that's really going to be a key advantage for the drug in competing with Keytruda. So as I previously mentioned, Keytruda has been dominating the immune checkpoint inhibitor market. And um, with such a broad label and extensive data across multiple indications, it is safe to say physicians have developed substantial familiarity with this drug. So second to market entry behind such a flagship will be a tough challenge for Lipteo. Um, so having this differentiator of survival data in pre-treated patients is going to be really important in Lipteo's bid to still market shares. With that being said, what is perhaps even more exciting from these ESMO results uh, is the confirmation of Libteo's efficacy in the pdl one negative population. So in an exploratory subgroup analysis of patients uh, stratified by pdl one expression, the overall survival improvement was still observed in pdl one negative patients um, with notably comparable hazard ratios between the pdl one negative and pdl one positive groups. So uh, the hazard ratio for OS improvement in patients with PDL1 expression of less than 1% was 0.65 uh, compared to the hazard ratio of 0.61 in the PDL1 uh, positive subgroup. Now, notably, this analysis is only exploratory. However, it marks another vital advantage for Libteo over Keytruda. So the Keynote 158 trial enrolled exclusively PDL1 positive patients. And hence, Keytruda was awarded approval for PDL1 positive cervical cancer patients only. So, the subgroup analysis presented at ESMO indicates the potential for Libtea to be efficacious regardless of PDL1 status and warrants further examination in this patient population. If Libtea were to receive approval without a biomarker restriction, this would enable access to a considerably larger patient population for Libtea compared to Keytruda and therefore set the drug in better stead to pull greater market share within the cervical cancer pdl one inhibitor market. So if it's approved, do you think Libteo is likely to be successful in the second line setting? And is there opportunity for expansion into other lines of therapy in the future? Yes, I think so. I don't doubt that it will be a challenge to drive uptake of Libteo over Keytruda, um, considering Keytruda's notoriety uh, but a broader approval without a biomarker restriction would be very useful for Libteo. However, something important to bear in mind is the potential shift we may see in the treatment landscape in the upcoming years. So 
Following the positive survival results released from Keynote 826, which support frontline use of Keytruda, we may actually expect uptake of Keytruda in the first line setting. So this potential evolution paradigm may have a knock on effect and hinder uh, second line use of Libteo, which currently has no clinical data evaluating Libteo use in Keytruda pre-treated cervical cancer patients. So if the Keytruda and chemotherapy frontline regime is received well and becomes the new standard of care, it will render the EMPOWER trial data slightly inapplicable as this data evaluates second line Libteo use in platinum chemotherapy pre-treated patient population. However, if Libteo uh, is to receive approval irrespective of PDL1 expression, then this would salvage the drug within this uh, patient population, as the PDL1 negative patients would be unable to receive Keytruda in the frontline setting. Uh, regardless of all of that, while we await to see how uptake of Keytruda in the first line setting does pan out, Libteo does look set to be a strong candidate for pre-treated patients. The company hasn't yet disclosed any plans to pursue Libteo in earlier lines of therapy. And considering the voluntary withdrawal of the SBLA for the US market, I think it's unlikely that they will. Um, however, I think it's re reasonable to assume the drug would also show impressive efficacy in this setting too, if it were to be ever uh, explored. And there was also positive data presented for the combination of Keytruda and HPV vaccine GX188E in heavily pretreated HPV 16 and or 18 positive advanced cervical cancer patients at ESMO. Whilst this drug is currently only being investigated in South Korea, do you think the results presented at ESMO from this trial could also play into the evolving treatment landscape? Uh, that's a good question. So the phase two data presented at ESMO for GX188E in combination with Keytruda highlighted the regime to show impressive efficacy um, in this hard to treat, heavily pre-treated patient setting. And what was exciting about these results, again, is the efficacy seen in the PDL1 negative population. So uh, the combination regime uh, treatment um, reported an overall response rate of 25% in the PDL1 negative population. So whilst that is notably lower than the 36.1% uh, overall response rate that was achieved in the PDL1 positive population, it still demonstrates a potential for this combination therapy to exert efficacy within PDL1 negative patients. And this is interesting data as it suggests a potential avenue for Keytruda to have approval without a biomarker restriction through combination with a HP vaccine uh, in HPV 16 and or 18 positive refractory patients. So, of course, as you mentioned, this trial is conducted in a Korean population and the company has not disclosed any plans to pursue this combination outside of South Korea or evaluate it in a Western population. However, either way, it may be just be an early indicator for the future possibility to relieve Keytruda of its biomarker restriction within some cervical cancer patient uh, subpopulations. And lastly, I'll discuss multiple abstracts presented at ESMO, which discuss results for multiple regimes for the frontline treatment of advanced hepatocellular carcinoma, or HCC. What was really positive to see was that two Chinese companies released phase three results at ESMO. Hengri presented findings from the 543 patient phase three SHR 1210 study comparing its PD-1 inhibitor 
camrilizumab and Elevar Therapeutics VEGFR inhibitor Rivocerinib against Nexvar, which was the previous standard of care before the Bevacizumab plus Tocentric combination was approved in 2020. Biogene also announced results from the Phase 3 Rationale 301 study investigating PD-1 inhibitor Tislilizumab as a monotherapy against Nexvar. The camrilizumab plus rivocerinab combination met its co-primary endpoints of showing a significant improvement in PFS and OS over Nexavar in patients with previously untreated advanced HCC. The combination demonstrated results which were comparable to the data seen with other combinations in the frontline setting, such as tocentric and bevacizumab, which has dominated the frontline setting after it demonstrated a 19.2-month median OS, a 6.9-month median PFS, and a 30% overall response rate in Imbrave 150. But the results from the camrilizumab and rivocerinab combination are actually in line with the results seen with the tocentric and bevacizumab combination. Um, the camrilizumab and rivocerinab showed an OS of 22.1 months and a median PFS of 5.6 months and an overall response rate of 25.4. However, what we did see in SHR 1210 was that patients treated with the camrilizumab combination experienced quite a bit of toxicity, so caution may be needed when treating these patients who are less fit and with less hepatic function. For example, 80% of patients who receive camrilizumab plus rovacerinab experience a grade 3 or higher treatment related to birth event. And in comparison, 52% of patients treated with Nexavar experience a grade three or above adverse event. Also, despite tocentric and bevacizumab also being a PD-1 VEGFR inhibitor combination, Imbrave 150 only saw 43% of patients experience a grade three to four treatment related adverse event. What's interesting is both Imbrave 150 and SHR 1210 utilize Nexavar as a comparator and both showed a statistical benefit over Nexavar. In contrast, Lemvima and Keytruda recently failed to meet its primary endpoint of a statistical improvement in PFS over Lemvima monotherapy in the Phase 3 LEAP002 trial, despite demonstrating similar numerical data to the data seen in both Imbrave 150 and SHR1210. Although Nexavar was the previous standard of care for first-line HCC, Perhaps if the camrilizumab combination had been up against a more active comparator or even rivocerinab alone had been used, it may not have reached statistical significance over its comparator. Or in contrast, LEAP002 readout may have been positive if it had utilised Nexavar as a control arm rather than Lemvima as a monotherapy, as the Lemvima control arm in the study actually produced the strongest data for Lemvima in HCC we have seen. Bygene also released first results for its PD-1 inhibitor tislilizumab as a monotherapy and the results were as expected considering the previous failure of immunotherapy monotherapies in this setting. Obdivo's failure in Checkmate 459 trial and the subsequent withdrawal of its accelerated approval as a monotherapy in the second-line treatment setting has left tislilizumab the only PD-1 inhibitor monotherapy in development. At ESMO, it was presented that single-agent tislilizumab demonstrated OS non-inferiority compared to Nexavar in previously untreated advanced HCC patients, but it did fail to demonstrate superiority. The 15.9-month OS seen in the tislilizumab arm is a modest numerical benefit over the 14.1-month OS seen in the Nexavar arm. However, treatment with the PD-1 inhibitor did not lead to a longer median PFS. 
it was 2.1 months for tizolizumab and 3.4 months for Nexavar. And when you compare this data to combination regimens, the efficacy for single agent immunotherapy falls short. As I said before, Tocentric and Bevacizumab showed a 19-month median OS and a 7-month median PFS in Embrafe 150 in the same patient population. It was suggested at ESMO that single-agent immunotherapy could be a safe option for less fit patients. And so overall, these res results are still fairly positive considering the HTC market has recently seen a multitude of trial failures, especially within the frontline setting. And that concludes our post-ESMO podcast. Thank you, everyone, for listening.